Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted 2015, a Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends, enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next year. Uh, to this seminar. Uh, my name is Steve Hurd and uh, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce in a moment Adrian Holloway who's going to uh, speak to us and help us on this subject of hasn't science buried God. Um, so welcome. Uh, some of you may have heard, uh, I know I've heard Adrian on this subject uh, several times and uh, it never fails to uh, encourage me and to help me and indeed to inspire me. I'm going to uh, get Adrian up in a moment. He's going to speak. There will be time, we think, for questions and some questions and answers at the end, but uh, at about 3.30, Adrian's going to stop and pause. So if you need to be elsewhere, then there'll be an opportunity to do so, but then he's going to take some questions and answers. We will be out of here by about 10 to 5 to 4, but for those of you who want more, Adrian is then going to walk down to the hub where he's doing a book signing session. Uh, some of you may know that Adrian's written two excellent, uh, very uh, accessible books, uh, The Shock of Your Life and Aftershock, dealing with this subject and many more subjects uh, under the general area of apologetics. So um, you're going to be richly encouraged and I'm sure entertained this afternoon as well. So without any further ado, would you like to welcome Adrian Holloway? Thank you very much, Steve. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. It's great to have a chance to speak on this very interesting and important question, hasn't science buried God? My background is that I wasn't brought up as an evangelical Christian, and I guess I would be a naturally skeptical person, and there is a little bit of my journey in here. So hasn't science buried God? Uh, This book I'm holding is geneticist Francis Collins' personal story of how he converted from atheism to Christianity. It's the story of how halfway through his academic career as a scientist, he became a follower of Jesus. And after becoming a Christian, Collins was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And in April 2003, he announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the entire human genome, one of the most astounding scientific advances of all time. Has science buried God? Well, clearly not, in the opinion of the many leading scientists like Francis Collins, who believe in God. They see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. And they would say that juxtaposing science and God as opposites, they'd say that's a category mistake. Now, what do they mean by a category mistake? Well, let's imagine that I decide to make a cup of tea. And then let's imagine that at some point, while the kettle is boiling, scientists Kelvin and Joule discover 
the precise mechanism whereby heat is turned into boiling water. So we now know how the water boiled. We have discovered the mechanism. But it would be a mistake to say that because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist. It's a mistake because you could still quite accurately say that the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore Adrian Holloway doesn't exist. That would be a category mistake. So we don't need an adversarial either or explanation. And it seems that most people in Britain agree. A 2005 European Commission poll found that 78% of people in the UK believe in God and or the supernatural. These are the very same British adults who have more scientific knowledge than any preceding generation. So it seems that even in this modern technological age, most British people don't see science and God as enemies. They don't see it as an either-or. Most British people do see science and God as a both-and. And so having heard this kind of reply, I said, okay, maybe you're right. Science hasn't buried God. But hey, as we discover more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does look increasingly unlikely, yes? Well, that is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Firstly then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe was eternal. Just accept it, they said. It's always been there. And they used to argue in that way because at the time the universe was thought to be locked in a static or so-called steady state. Then an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not locked in a static steady state. Hubble saw that the other galaxies are moving away from us and from each other. And one way to visualize what Hubble saw is to use a balloon. So, just imagine, if you can for a moment, that the stars on my eight-year-old daughter's balloon are actually galaxies. What Edwin Hubble saw is that wherever we look in the universe, the galaxies are moving away from us and from each other. So, if the galaxies are moving away from us and from each other, cosmologists concluded that the universe is expanding. And they also concluded, therefore, that at some time, the universe must, in the past, have been much smaller than it is today. In fact, they concluded that at one time, the universe was no bigger than this balloon. They concluded that at one time, the universe must have had a beginning. And then in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that was left behind by this beginning moment. The radiation is like a signature left behind by this beginning moment. And so today, 
there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time, the universe did have a beginning. Now, this was a blow to atheists because they could no longer argue that the universe had always been there. This would be a good example of a scientific discovery making it easier to believe in God because this beginning moment does look like Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 where God said, let there be light and there was light. Let me put it to you another way. Imagine if I said to you that 13.7 billion years ago there was absolutely nothing. And then a fraction of a second later, there was a huge purple carrot the size of Canada. Well, the sudden appearance of the carrot would demand some sort of explanation. You see, it is not that matter and energy exploded into an already existing space-time universe. No. Space and time themselves began to exist at the beginning moment. Space, time, matter, and energy all began to exist at the same moment. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly out of nothing. And this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, this sounds reasonable. At least we don't know of any exceptions to this step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. And as we've already seen, that is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. This is the standard model. The conclusion necessarily follows that the universe has a cause. Something, or someone, that exists outside of time and space caused the space-time universe to be, begin to exist. Now, everyone in the world bases their lives on the law of cause and effect. The most reliable scientific principle of all time is that out of nothing, nothing comes. So to get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that would be capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence, well, you could call that first cause God. So I looked at the origin of the universe. Next, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, we know that if we were just 5% closer to the sun, we'd fry. We know that if we were 5% further away, we'd freeze. There would be no life on Earth. And our solar system just happens to be in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone of our Milky Way, in between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms. You can perhaps see the tiny yellow letters which show where our sun is, that is a rare, safe place in the Milky Way. Also, of course, where you are. But the degree of fine-tuning that we're talking about with the origin of the universe is far more impressive than any of this. Way back at the beginning of the universe, there's an explosion which causes matter to fly outwards, but at a perfectly controlled speed. Too fast, 
and nothing will ever settle down that exists in the universe, too slow, and the universe just collapses back on itself. So the universe expands, but the speed of expansion turns out to be critical. If it's slowed down too much, the universe can never get going in the first place. Folks, if the rate of expansion one second after the beginning moment had been smaller by even one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And the speed of expansion is controlled by something called the cosmological constant, which is the energy density of empty space. And therefore, the cosmological constant cannot be just any old number. No, in order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant has to be fine-tuned to a very precise number. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And it isn't just the cosmological constant, which is four up from the bottom of this chart. There are, as you can see, 20 of these forces, 20 numbers, 20 values that have to be just so. Otherwise, no humans, no people could ever have existed. Roger Penrose, who helped develop our current understanding of black holes, he computed the odds or the chances of entropy, the speed at which things break down and decay in the universe, the chances of entropy being the value that it is, here's the chance, one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe. But entropy is just one of the 20 factors. All 20 have to be just as they are in order for us to be here. So question, why is our universe so unlikely? Answer, because of the number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of the universe's existence. It turns out that gravity and electromagnetism have to just, bing, exist. But not just exist, they have to be perfectly matched in their relative values. The same is true of matter and antimatter. The same is true of neutrons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and weak nuclear force. Any messing with any of the numbers in the column that says value in our universe, and we wouldn't be here. If you touch any of those dials, there'd either be no universe or there would be no life. Take gravity, for example. Let's imagine that this tape measure is so long that it stretches from one side of the universe to the other. And let's imagine that this tape measure represents the total range of possible force strengths for gravity. So at this end of the universe, way over here, is the lightest gravitational force that we can imagine. But at the other end is the greatest gravitational force that we can possibly imagine. Now, let's imagine that gravity on Earth is currently set here. Okay? Now, let's imagine that I want to move gravity by two and a half centimeters from here to here. Folks, scientists have have discovered that that tiny change, two and a half centimeters on a tape measure 
that stretches from one side of the universe to the other. That tiny change would increase gravity on Earth a billion-fold. It would mean that there would be no life on Earth. It would mean that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. That tiny change would mean that planet Earth would never have been any bigger than this stage. Now, that's just gravity. All of the numbers on this table have to be perfectly related to each other. There are two on this list that scientists have discovered those two have to be fine-tuned to a precision of one part in ten to the power of 40. Now, let's just think about what, what's a one in ten to the power 40 chance? Well, Dr. Hugh Ross of Toronto University has an illustration uh, of the one in ten to the power 40 chance. This is a famous illustration. He says, let's imagine that you cover a continent the size of North America with coins. And these coins, you pile them up into a huge pile that's so high that they reach 236,000 miles up to the moon. And then he says, take another additional 1 billion continents, also the size of North America. And on each of these continents, you also pile these coins up so high that they reach 236,000 miles into the sky. Okay, with me so far? Then Dr. Hugh Ross says, now let's imagine that you take one additional coin and you paint this coin red. And then you hide your red coin in one of your one billion piles, all of which are the size of North America, all of which are 236,000 miles high. Then let's imagine that you find a member of the public and you ask them, would you like to participate in a scientific experiment? And let's imagine they say yes. You say, would you mind being blindfolded? They said, no, that's quite all right. And then after being blindfolded, you invite your friend to pick a coin, any coin. The chance that your friend will pick the one red coin out of the one billion piles that are the size of North America that reach the moon is a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. Folks, that's the relationship between just two of the 20 values on our chart. For us to be here to talk about it, all 20 have to be just so. Folks, in any other area of life, you and I would never accept sheer luck or chance as an explanation for the facts that are in front of us. Let's... Can we just change it? Sure. We're going to have a 30-second intermission here. Talk about the origin of organic life. Okay, now we're going to watch a video at this point, so it's actually quite a good place for us to pause. Um, if you want to press play on the video. Uh, if each of us looked, but we're going to talk about the origin of organic life here. If each of us were to look now at our DNA sequence, uh, we would be blown away by the complexity of the information that's carried in each and every one 
of our cells. And with the benefit of computer animation, uh, we can enter inside the cell and we can have a look at this remarkable system at work. So uh, after entering into the heart of the cell, which we are doing here, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA. These are the storehouses containing the instructions that are needed to build every protein in an organism. And then in a process that's known as transcription, what happens next is that a molecular machine first unwinds the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. And then another molecular machine copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. And then when transcription is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. You can see it there knocking on the door. It's all very civilized and British, don't you think? This is the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is then directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. And there, after attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. And these amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell, and then they're linked into chains that are often hundreds of units long. And it's their sequential arrangement that determines the type of protein manufactured. And all of this, of course, is determined by your unique DNA code, that code that was embedded in that double helical structure that we were looking at right back at the beginning of our little video here. Anyway, when this chain is eventually finished, it's moved uh, from the ribosome to this barrel-shaped machine, and in here it's folded into the precise chain shape that is critical to its function. And if we have more time, we talk about the three-dimensional peptide bonds which are vital to this folding process. Anyway, we're almost at the end here. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine that appears out of nowhere. Here it comes. It's a little bit like Star Wars. There we are. Isn't that fantastic? And it's taken then to the exact location where it is needed. And of course, all of that is happening in your body while you're watching the animation. That's a cell today. But even the most primitive, even the most basic living cell that scientists have ever been able to imagine, even that cell contains information, information in a code. And so the code and the means of translating it are both needed from the word go. One is useless without the other. So where did the information in the first ever living cell come from? Well, Sir Francis Crick is the man who discovered the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA, the genetic code of life. He said that there is zero 
probability of life coming into existence on earth by chance. It's been said by many that Francis Crick understood the complexity of life starting on earth better than anybody else. He knows that DNA can't just happen, but Sir Francis Crick was an atheist. So how did DNA get here? He said that DNA arrived billions of years ago in a spaceship sent to Earth by aliens. Sir Francis Crick said that seeing as life could never have come into existence on this planet by chance, it must have been transported here by intelligent life from elsewhere in the galaxy by spaceship. He says in his book Life Itself, quote, microorganisms traveled in the head of an unmanned spaceship sent to Earth by a higher civilization which developed elsewhere billions of years ago. So it seems that he hasn't solved the problem. It seems that he's simply moved the problem. With each passing decade, the problem of getting life from non-life increases. Naturalistic models of getting life from non-life depend upon the early Earth having a so-called reducing atmosphere. But then atmospheric physicists established in the 1980s that the atmosphere on the early Earth was the exact opposite of the required reducing atmosphere. The idea at the time was that life emerged by chance on Earth from a prebiotic soup of chemicals. But then in the 1990s, studies showed the early Earth never had a prebiotic soup. So we are out of time for this section. Let's just try and draw some of these threads together. Now, I think it's clear that nothing that I have said today proves that God exists. Perhaps I'll repeat that once more. Nothing that I've said today proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation, then when you look at the origin of the universe and when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe and when you're looking at the origin of biological information, in all three cases, what seems to be needed is a transcendent, intelligent first cause. And you could call a transcendent, intelligent first cause God. So it's clear that science hasn't buried God. God's existence is actually a reasonable explanation for the existence of the universe and also a reasonable explanation for the existence of life. Okay, somebody says. But what about the multiverse? If you ask an atheist today, how come the universe exists, they will probably respond by speculating about the existence of multiple universes. Here they admit how unlikely our universe looks, so an atheist says that there were, at one time, billions of hypothetical universes, all of which were trying to come into existence. The only reason why our universe exists is because our numbers worked. But the multiverse does not succeed in getting rid of God, because if the multiverse is correct then you would still have to have some sort of mind or force or power that was intelligent enough to be able to generate from nothing an ensemble of universes. 
I say from nothing because in 2003, scientists Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe that has, on average, over its history, been in a state of cosmic expansion cannot be eternal in the past and must have a space-time boundary. And crucially, Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin were able to show that their theorem holds not just for our universe, but that it applies to the multiverse as well. Vilenkin writes, quote, It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. End quote. Okay, another question could be, who made God? Richard Dawkins said that the objection, who made God, is the central argument of his book, The God Delusion. But we saw earlier that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, if the God of the Bible does exist, then the God of the Bible didn't begin to exist. So the God of the Bible wouldn't require a cause. And the Big Bang points us to this uncaused cause. The beginning moment was the beginning of space. So the cause of the universe must be spaceless. The beginning moment was the beginning of time. So the cause of the universe must be timeless. The beginning moment was the beginning of matter. So the cause of the universe must be immaterial. The beginning moment was the beginning of energy. So the cause of the universe must be immeasurably great. The spaceless, timeless, immaterial, immeasurably great cause of the universe looks just like the uncreated God of the Bible. Another question could be, what about Stephen Hawking, who says that you don't need God to explain a universe coming into existence out of, quote, nothing? You could say, like Stephen Hawking says, that once the law of gravity exists it is then inevitable that the universe will begin to exist. But even if that is true, you're still left with the question, well, where did the law of gravity come from? In fact, for that matter, why should any physical laws exist? Now, I would say that his claim, once gravity exists, it's inevitable that the universe will begin to exist. I would say that's at best unproven. I'd say it's at worst unprovable. But in any way, in any event, Hawking hasn't got rid of God. He has redefined the word nothing to include within his definition of nothing the law of gravity. So he's just substituted a different G word. You might call the creator God. Stephen Hawking calls the creator gravity. But he hasn't solved the problem. For an analysis of Hawking's and several other uh, highly speculative alternative models of how the universe began, um, I would recommend either this book, Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, or The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, both of which you can come and have a look at at the end if you are interested. <clears throat> but let us just consider also the philosophical case for atheism, for the position that the universe did pop into existence out of nothing for absolutely 
no reason at all. The idea that things come into being uncaused out of nothing is worse than magic. Because at least when a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, at least you've got the magician. At least you've got a hat. This is a principle that is constantly confirmed. This is a principle that is never falsified. We never see things coming into existence uncaused out of nothing. Nobody ever thinks, oh no, I'd better not go into the bathroom to brush my teeth because for all I know, a bear or a lion or a tiger could suddenly pop into existence out of nothing in the bathroom and attack me. If something as vast and as complex as the universe can pop into existence uncaused out of nothing, why don't other things pop into existence for no apparent reason? Okay, well, it's high time that we moved on to our next question, which is what about evolution? And let me just take a run-up to this question by saying that sometimes, as you probably know, Christians take different views on evolution. And I want to outline three different positions. There are many more than three, but I've only got time to outline three. Firstly, young earth creationism. This is the view that the earth is young. The earth is no more than twenty to 30,000 years old. If you asked a young earth creationist, well, what about all the fossils? I mean, come on, aren't they millions of years old? They would typically reply, no, 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 those fossils have all been laid down during Noah's flood. If you ask the young earth creationists, well, come on, what about the dinosaurs? I mean, they lived between 250 million and 65 million years ago. They would say, no, 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 all dinosaurs died thousands, not millions of years ago. Young earth creationists say that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are best understood as literal 24-hour days. This interpretation has held sway in the vast majority of Bible-believing churches in the USA for many years. Young earth creationists are adamant that evolution has not taken place, by which they mean evolution on a large scale or macro evolution. And let's just be clear about this. Everyone agrees that microevolution, evolution on a small scale, has taken place. Of course, you get variations, you get adaptions, you get small horses becoming big horses, you can breed endless varieties of dogs, you get bacteria developing resistance to antibiotics. Of course, in nature, you do get the survival of the fittest, the weak get killed by the strong. So natural selection is a fact of life. There's no dispute about that. All Christians agree with microevolution. In fact, as far as I know, everyone alive today believes that evolution on a small scale has taken place. What young earth creationists challenge is evolution on a large scale. They don't buy the spectacular story of how amoebas evolved into fish, fish into reptiles, reptiles into birds, and then at the top of the tree, the bit that we're most familiar with, which is monkeys becoming people. The idea is common descent, one species evolving into another, into another over millions of years. So young earth creationists don't believe that all living beings are descended from a common ancestor, which would be the first ever single-celled organism. Young earth creationists don't believe in common descent. 
The second view is old earth creationism, and the version of this that I'm going to present briefly now is that put forward by a ministry uh, called Reasons to Believe. So old earth creationists, as the name implies, they say that the earth is old. And they're happy to go along with the modern scientific consensus which says that the universe is 13.7 billion years old and that the earth is around four and a half billion years old. They argue that the Hebrew word yom, which is translated as day in Genesis chapter 1, can mean a long period of time. In fact, they argue that elsewhere, even in the book of Genesis, it definitely is used to refer to a long period of time. A bit like a history book that you and I might read could say, in the day of Queen Victoria, London doubled in size using the word day to refer to a longer period than 24 hours. So the old earth guys say the creation days were longer than 24 hours. But the old earth creationists agree with the young earth creationists that common descent has not taken place. They agree that Adam and Eve were the special creation of God, that they were the first ever anatomically modern humans to live on earth. Old Earthers argue, even with life starting on Earth 3.8 billion years ago, that is still not enough time for gradual step-by-step macroevolution to have got us all the way from an amoeba to modern humans. But here's the thing. The Old Earth creationists accept that there were hominids who lived on Earth before we modern humans ever came on the scene. So they accept, for example, that Chidensis was a hominid living in Chad in Africa sometime around 7 million years ago, that Ardipithecus ramidus lived between 6 and 5 million years ago, that Afarensis lived between 4 and 3 million years ago, that Homo habilis lived around 2 million years ago, that Homo agaster lived between 1.8 and 0.5 million years ago, and that Neanderthals lived between 150,000 and as recently as 30,000 years ago. But the old earthers say, although these are bipeds, none of these hominids are related to us. They were animals, spiritually speaking, that God created that later went extinct. None of them are our ancestors. Excuse me. A third view Finally, is theistic evolution. Now, these guys accept macroevolution. They accept common descent. <clears throat> they argue that God may well have been guiding the process. Some argue that God got involved to get us over a few crucial barriers to our evolutionary progress, especially at the miniature level of molecular biology. But either with more or less divine intervention, the point is that theistic evolutionists agree with the scientific consensus today that common descent has taken place. And so they might say, yeah, modern humans are descended from an ancestor that at one time we shared with a chimpanzee. Now, of course, a question that a theistic evolutionist will often get asked is, okay, but what about Adam and Eve? And here, there are a number of different models that they suggest. And it's important to understand that evolutionary biologists say that evolution takes place within populations. 
So one theistic view says that within a population of hominids, there was one couple, a couple who the Bible calls Adam and Eve, who although they look similar to their parents and to everybody else who was alive at the time, something unique happened to this couple spiritually, whereby God sent his spirit into them, making them the first people in the image of God. So Adam and Eve, therefore, are a kind of a representative couple in a big group. They weren't the only human-looking people around, but in God's eyes, they became special. So a theistic evolutionist might say that when we read in Genesis 2, verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, they would say, well, yeah, God's making Adam out of something else that he's previously made. A bit like in Genesis 1.24 where it says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And they'd say, well, sounds like the earth or nature is doing some of the work. So they'd say, well, maybe there is scope for Adam being descended from a non-human ancestor. Now it's obvious, isn't it, that these three views do interpret the early chapters of Genesis differently. And within our church, Everyday Church in London, and probably on this campsite, you will find Christians who take each of these three views, and in fact several other views that I haven't had time to mention. Now quite apart from the very important question of which is the best interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis, my own view is that I have yet to be persuaded by the scientific evidence that macroevolution has taken place. And this is perhaps surprising, seeing as I was brought up to believe in macroevolution, seeing as my parents believe in macroevolution, seeing as I was taught macroevolution. But anyway, I've yet to be convinced by the scientific evidence for it. So here are at least some questions. One question could be, How can gradual step-by-step evolution explain the missing links in the fossil record and the Cambrian explosion? Because when Charles Darwin introduced the theory of macroevolution in 1859, his biggest problem was, although he said that fish had evolved into land creatures, which had evolved into birds and so on, at the time he didn't have the fossils to illustrate his theory. He didn't have the fossils of these intermediate creatures which had supposedly existed. In other words, fish that had randomly grown the beginnings of legs, but legs that weren't yet powerful enough to walk on. Or land creatures which had randomly grown the beginning of wings, but wings not yet powerful enough to fly with. Although there were fossils in Darwin's day, he was honest in saying he didn't have the fossils he needed of the transitionary creatures to prove his theory, but he confidently predicted that in the next hundred years or so those fossils would be found. Well, millions of fossils have been found in the last 150 years since Darwin wrote his famous Origin of Species, but in the rock we find nothing, 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 and then we find a Cambrian explosion of fossils with many animals much the same the first time they appear in the fossil record, as they are today. The fully blown body plans appear fully formed at the point when they first turn up 
in the fossil record. This is a problem that is acknowledged by people like Richard Dawkins. For example, he writes, the Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years, are the oldest ones in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution, the very first time they appear. It is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. So the missing links are still missing. One of evolution's leading advocates in the world today, Steve Jones, former professor of genetics at University College London, he says this. The fossil record, in defiance of Darwin's whole idea of gradual change, often makes great leaps from one form to the next. Far from the display of intermediates to be expected from slow advance through natural selection, many species appear without warning, persist in fixed form, and disappear, leaving no descendants. Geology assuredly does not reveal any finely graduated organic chain, and this is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. As more bones turn up, the story becomes less clear. In spite of a century's claims of the discovery of missing links, it's quite possible that no bone yet found is on the direct genetic line to ourselves. With so many kinds to choose from, so few remains of each, and such havoc among the relics, none of the fossils may have direct descendants today. Let me just repeat two sentences. It is quite possible that no bone yet found is on the direct genetic line to ourselves, and that none of the fossils may have direct descendants today. Well, that is quite an admission from the second most prominent evolutionist in Britain today, I'm sure we would all agree this is hardly the message that is coming through in the classroom and it is definitely not the message that you will hear on television. A second question could be, how do you get the new genetic information needed to drive macroevolution over all the barriers that it faces? What is the mechanism? The studies that I've seen suggest that species tend to revert to type and that very little or no genetic information is generated by natural selection acting upon random mutation. Yes, there are mutations, but mutations are rarely positive. They're like a printing error in a book. A printing mistake rarely improves the message. But for macroevolution to be true, we have to have loads of incredibly unlikely positive mutations all happening in a sort of coordinated way at the same time. We don't see this in nature. It doesn't happen. An organ is a highly integrated system. Any isolated change is likely to be more harmful than helpful if a fish's gills were to start mutating into a set of lungs. That would be a disaster and not an advantage. The only way to transform a fish into a land-dwelling animal is to transform it all at once, to have thousands of interrelated random mutations all at the same time. Now, evolutionists argue that with millions of tiny incremental changes and vast amounts of time, huge change can be achieved gradually. But, for example, we have got the dates for freshwater and saltwater whales. And recent studies into the evolution of freshwater whales into saltwater whales has shown that radically different internal organs are required. And because we can date the whale skeletons, 
We know there isn't enough time for this change to have come about by small, successive, just-right mutations. Another example would be blood clotting. Without blood clotting, we would all bleed to death, yet too much blood clotting too early, and we would have a blood clot, a heart attack, and die. Studying how blood clotting works is one of the most awe-inspiring things I have ever done. But it is a process which cannot happen by incremental stages. You've got to have blood clotting working perfectly from the word go. A third question could be, surely much of the evidence for common descent could just as easily be interpreted as evidence for common design. In other words, whether you're looking at a DNA coding sequence or whether you're looking at a body plan, whether you're looking at a molecule or at a set of bones, in most cases I've come across the homology or similarity between the same feature showing up in two different animals could just as easily be explained by common design as it is more usually explained by common descent. So, for example, you could look at a 100-year-old Model T Ford car alongside a modern Ford Fiesta, and you could say, well, obviously, the Fiesta evolved from the Model T. After all, they're using the same basic structure. Four wheels driven by an engine, guided by a seated driver, holding a steering wheel. What great evidence this is for common descent. What great evidence this is for macroevolution. Or you can look at the same two cars separated by 100 years and you can say, you know what? This is evidence for a common designer, Henry Ford. Henry Ford hit upon a design in 1903 and it still works. So it's just getting reused again and again and again. In other words, you could say what great evidence this is for common, a common designer, not common descent. Anyway... Whatever we may think about this subject, perhaps it would be wise for us to finish with a few cautionary tales. I'm sure that all of us here would agree that we should all approach this subject with a good dose of humility. For example, when I went to university 25 years ago, the way that biologists understood evolution, or human origins I should say at the time, was through the so-called multi-regional hypothesis. In other words, when I went to university 25 years ago, it was thought that human beings had evolved independently millions of years ago all over the world, in different parts of the world. And that is what accounts for the differences between the races that we see today. That's why African people look different from Asian people and so on. Well, that model now has been totally discredited. That model has been entirely replaced by the out-of-Africa model, which says that all people living today are all descended from one small group of modern humans who came out of East Africa comparatively recently. Well, that is an absolutely massive change. We've gone from human evolution happening all over the world independently to Everyone who's ever lived, everybody alive today, all being descended from one small population group from one location very recently. In the same way, when I published my Aftershock book in 2004, one of the first academic reviewers, they said that junk DNA or mitochondrial DNA 
has no functionality and that it was the best evidence that we humans are descended from other hominids. That's why we've got all this junk DNA knocking around that we don't need anymore. It's non-coding, it's junk, it's, we're carrying it around, it's left over from our evolutionary past. But in the last two years, we have found numerous functions for junk DNA. Junk DNA is no longer considered to be junk at all. Also, in my lifetime, I have seen both Neanderthals and Homo agaster put forward and then ruled out as ancestral to modern humans. The fact is that human beings display much less genetic diversity than any other species. This human similarity is observed worldwide regardless of race or ethnicity. Molecular anthropologists therefore propose what is sometimes called the Garden of Eden hypothesis to explain this limited genetic diversity. The new consensus, the current orthodoxy, is that humanity had a recent origin in a single location and that the original population size must have been very small. Two final questions. Who is Y-chromosomal Adam? Let me just quote the Wikipedia definition. Y-chromosomal Adam refers to the most recent common ancestor from whom all currently living people are descended patrilineally. This term reflects the fact that the Y-chromosomes of all currently living males are directly derived from the Y-chromosome of this remote ancestor. Who is mitochondrial Eve? Again, quoting from Wikipedia, the analogous concept of matrilineally of the most common recent ancestor is known as mitochondrial Eve, the woman from whom all living humans are descended matrilineally. Conclusion? All modern humans are descended from one male and one female gene sequence relatively recently, and we emerged from one location. Now, you may wonder, well, how on earth could that be explained from an evolutionary perspective? And they suggest there must have been a mass extinction event whereby everybody else got killed, and that would explain how we're all descended from this, this one male sequence of this one female, you know, these two ancestors of us all. There was a genetic bottleneck. Well, look, as we finish, I think we need to be cautious. I think it is best to avoid sweeping statements. I always assume that the person who I'm talking to uh, has studied this subject in greater depth than I have. But I hope that we've seen today that evolution, if it is true, wouldn't disprove God. We're not faced with an either-or situation So if you believe in macroevolution, you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe in God. For example, here's the view of Ridley Scott, the director of films such as Blade Runner, Gladiator, and so on, interviewed on the release of his Moses, Gods, and Kings film on the BBC News. He was asked whether he believes in God. Ridley Scott replied, For me to be sitting opposite you talking about this now there would have to have been a trillion, trillion coincidental elements that would fall into place to enable us to be talking right now. That means that somewhere in there, there has to be some kind 
of guidance system. It seems that science hasn't buried God. On the contrary, when Sir Arthur Eddington photographed objects behind the sun during a total eclipse on the 29th of May 1919, he proved that Einstein's theory is correct. That light is bent by the gravitational mass of the sun. He proved that the universe is not static. And that was an important step away from a static, eternal, steady-state universe towards the current orthodoxy of an expanding universe caused by a beginning moment. Now, what enabled us to confirm that Einstein's theory is correct? Answer? A total eclipse of the sun. It just so happens that the sun is 400 times further away from us than the moon, but it is also 400 times bigger than the moon, which means that those two objects, the sun and the moon, appear as exactly the same size when viewed from the viewing platform of planet Earth. And what do we find on planet Earth? Conscious observers. So on the one viewing platform in the universe where we have found conscious observers, it also just happens that we also have the unique circumstances that make a total eclipse possible. Could it be that God put people on the one viewing platform in the universe where it would be possible to make the scientific discovery that the universe had a beginning so that we could be confident that God exists. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. Okay. Well, we're going to break in five minutes. For any of you that need to go, in five minutes we'll have a break. Uh, But just for these five minutes and then afterwards as well, we'll have some questions. So if you have a question, please put your hand up. Steve will run around with the microphone. And we'll have maybe a couple of questions, then we'll break, then we'll do some more, and we'll be all done by five to four. So uh, ask a question, any question? Thank you. Adrian, I've got a question which is probably relevant and also probably meaningless. (laughs) We have a, a cataclysmic creation of the universe, but God has always existed. God didn't start then. So before the creation of the universe, does anybody have the slightest idea what God was doing? (laughs) Uh, Well, this is actually, I think, quite a good question. And I also think that we do have some idea what God was doing, because there are lots of, this is from a Christian point of view, there's lots of Bible verses that suggest that God existed not just as one person, but as three persons in one God. So there was some kind of interaction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who were enjoying each other. And in fact, if you look at um, the book, the novel, The Shack, there's quite a lot of speculation in that book about what those three persons were doing before the creation of the universe. And Jesus at one point does talk about, when he's praying to his Father, he does talk about the glory I had with you before the world began. So there was some kind of interaction and enjoyment within those three persons in Christianity before the creation of the universe. Obviously, we're not going to know all about why God has done what he's done. So somebody might say, what about all the creatures that existed in the ocean that were never seen by any human being before they went extinct? 
Well, what was the point of that? Well, we would just have to say, well, I don't know, God's God. Presumably, he got some pleasure out of that. We don't quite know why God would create these creatures that later went extinct, but he did. You could even say the same thing about the dinosaurs. I mean, I think the dinosaurs are cool, but I didn't get to see them live, uh, apart from, you know, like on Jurassic Park. So, uh, you know, God obviously was up to something that we don't necessarily know what he was doing there, but I wouldn't expect to know. I think it's quite a good question. I think you, you put yourself down a bit there in your introduction. Any, any, I have to have one more question, then we'll break uh, for anybody that needs to shoot off. Just, just following on that question, really. You said that the implication in the start of the universe was space and time both started there, and yet you quite happily talk about what God was doing before. Doesn't before imply a sense of time? Well, if you, I think everybody can hear the question, so I won't repeat it. Um, I think that the Bible is clear that God is uncreated. So the, inc- the, the interaction between the three persons of the Trinity is outside of space-time. Now, we would refer to it as before because that's the only language that we can talk to each other in. So it's equally difficult. Let's imagine that this was a talk about Revelation 21 and 22. It would be really difficult for us to talk about that because we'd have to use the concept of time. But that would talk about an unending succession of moments. Well, of course, we'd immediately think, well, wouldn't you get bored if it's the same thing again and again and again? And immediately, we're using our concept of time. So I think you're right. We do have to talk about before and after. But there's no question that space and time did come into existence at that point because we know of at least 13 different tests that prove that general relativity is correct. General relativity is one of the best tested scientific theorems of all time. We are more confident about general relativity than we are about many other things that everyone in this room would take for granted and would think were completely undisputed. So space, time, matter, and energy did begin to exist at that beginning moment. Yes, as Christians, we believe in an uncaused God created eternally. I mean, an eternal sun. It's hard to process the concept. So I identify with the struggle, but I think we've got to hold to that beginning moment, which is what Genesis 1, 1 talks about. So I suggest maybe if anybody needs to go, please do slip away now. I'm going to carry on taking questions until about 5 to 4. Who's got the next uh, question? You want to put your hand up and Steve will run and get you? Anybody else with a question? Just put your hand up. Okay, anybody else want to ask anything either about the origin of the universe or the fine-tuning of the universe or the origin of life or evolution? Is there one here? And keep going for a little while until we break again. I've got loads of questions, but I think other people ought to have their own go, really. No, you keep going. Can I I'm like you, I just keep going. <laughs> until someone takes a microphone away from me, I just keep talking. You keep, you keep going. The, alt- the alternative view of all your wonderful constants is that we just wouldn't exist if those constants weren't here, yep. therefore they prove nothing apart from the fact that we exist. And that the more you find simply proves that we exist. It doesn't prove that anyone created them to be like that. 
Yes, I agree with that, absolutely. I wouldn't argue from that to proof that we exist. What I would say is that in real life, let me use an analogy that you may well be familiar with. Let's imagine that I'm on holiday in a foreign country. And this is a country where the culture is really different from Europe. And one morning I'm arrested, and I've no idea why. And I'm also sentenced to death by firing squad. And I've still got no idea why. And so I'm tied to a post. But what I do know is that in this country they, they have a 100 trained marksmen. And so I'm blindfolded. They're all pointing their guns at me. And I hear the guns fire. But five seconds later, somebody takes the blindfold off and I'm still alive. Now, if I were in that situation, would my first thought be, well, obviously they miss because I'm still alive. If I wasn't alive, I wouldn't be here to contemplate my existence. Nothing surprising has happened here. Hey, I mean, I wouldn't be around now if they hadn't missed. Or, in real life, would I be more likely to think, my goodness, what's going on here? There must be a reason why they missed. Now, I don't know what the reason is. The reason could be that they all missed deliberately. The reason could be that all of their guns were not loaded correctly. The reason could be that this was a mock execution. But in real life, I would never think, well, there doesn't have to be a reason. So I think that objection probably scores well in a philosophy essay in an undergraduate degree, but doesn't score well in normal life. And usually worldviews that don't work in real life are less attractive to me than worldviews that do work in real life. So that's why I personally think there's a problem with that response. I think it's a good question, though. Anyone else have a question about anything that's been said? Yeah, go for it. Um, I was listening to a program recently that was saying that we actually have Neanderthal DNA within our bodies. Yes. How do you kind of resolve that issue? Yes. So this is a really interesting recent development. So let's just take a few steps back, okay? A few steps back. I think I said in the talk, within the last 25 years, there have been loads of swinging views from one extreme to the other on Neanderthals. So Neanderthals... Uh, there's a number of things that make Neanderthals different from the other hominids that I talk about. One is that until recently, we haven't been able to do DNA testing on any skeletons more than 100,000 years old. Neanderthals are the only hominids that are less than 100,000 years old, so we can test them. Secondly, we found lots of them. So we've got lots of bits of uh, Neanderthal bone that we can work with. So at one time, people thought Neanderthals are the most recent ancestor of humans... Then when we mapped the entire Neanderthal genome, we found out that can't be the case. Now, much more recently, what you're talking about, I think, is some studies that suggest that there was some interbreeding. Now, bear in mind, as I'm answering this question, there is a significant group of scientists who say there cannot have been any interbreeding between Neanderthals and modern humans for one simple reason. They never, ever existed at the same time. Some people think that Neanderthals had completely gone extinct before modern humans ever arrived in Europe. So the Neanderthals, are, first of all, they're a small group. They lived in a part of Europe that possibly modern humans never even went to. 
So there are some scientists who reject all the arguments for interbreeding because there can't have been interbreeding because these people weren't even alive at the same time. Right? So, so that's all happening in the background. Meanwhile, you've got some people who are saying, okay, you've got some similar de- gene sequences. So that goes back to the point I was making with the Ford Fiesta and the Model T Ford. If you've got a similar gene sequence, is that evidence for a genetic link? Or could it be that that's evidence for common design? That there was a common designer who created Neanderthals and humans and used the same gene sequence twice. Then, (laughs) there's another debate that's happening over here, which is all based on the fact that all the arguments for the interbreeding are based on a statistical modeling, based on the genetic information, that other scientists are challenging. Okay? So... If you wanted to hear the most recent response to the idea of interbreeding between Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans, then I would recommend the author of this book, uh, who was Adam, is a man called Faz Rana. And if you go to the www.reasons.org, he's written a number of articles recently about this debate, about the possibility of interbreeding or not. So I know that that's quite a complex subject. The other thing we need to bear in mind is that Every year, we're discovering more about human genetics than we knew for the previous 10 years. So there are lots of seminars you could have come to today. When we're talking about human anthropology, we're finding out more every year than ever before. So the information is changing all and all and all, all the time. And I suspect that the debate about Neanderthals will swing back and forth again and again. And please bear in mind that if you're a young Earth creationist, you're saying that Neanderthals are anatomically modern humans, that there is no distinction. If you read Marvin Lobano's book, Bones of Contention, he will take you in some detail and argue that all these Neanderthal skeletons are actually anatomically modern humans. So even that is disputed. So it's a very interesting subject. Any other questions? Yeah. Hi, thanks, Adrian. It's good. Have you ever heard from an, an atheist point of view a good argument for the existence or the origins of ribosomes? For the origin? I missed the last word. Ribosomes, for the DNA transcription. Oh, how would they argue on the DNA transcription? Well, that's yeah, a, Where do they come from? Yeah, okay. Oh, there are quite a few um, ideas, and, and there's a cycle. So, for example, let's imagine we've been doing this seminar in the 1970s, or even in the 1980s, At that time, scientists, if you buy books from that time, they're all talking about the RNA world. So they were arguing at that time that DNA came out of RNA and that that's one possible route forward. At the moment, I haven't heard any counter-arguments that are winning a lot of support. So, for example, there's a man called Professor Klaus Dose who wrote the conclusion of a, a conference, an international conference on life origins and he said although I've got the quote somewhere on my computer that all the current theories are currently bringing us to a sense of frustration or confusion so there isn't at the moment um, like for example there was a time I don't know maybe 10 years ago when people were very interested in the vents under the sea and could that have been a place these vents under the sea where there's a lot of heat could life have originated there? 
But at the moment, all of these different theories, no one view is winning the day. There isn't a strong view that everybody else is backing. Other than you could say that that idea that Francis Crick talked about, which is, which is called directed panspermia, the idea that life on Earth originated elsewhere in the universe, that, I would say, is more popular today than it was even five years ago. That people are more and more interested. That This is why we're going to the, um, the asteroids and so on, because people are, are really interested, could it be that life was germinated on Earth and kick-started on Earth from elsewhere in the galaxy? So that idea is becoming more popular. Yeah, any other questions? Anyone got a question? There's one behind you, Steve. One more. Oh. Could you say something about how um, young Earth creationists would understand the um, physical, physiological differences between people in different parts of the world now? So how dark skin, light skin, dark hair, facial changes? Well, I'm really glad you've asked this question because it's a question that I... I myself struggle with this question. So let me first of all say that I'm not a young earth creationist. So you should ask, you should go on a website like Answers in Genesis and ask somebody like Ken Ham and he would give you an answer. I'm an old earth creationist, but still this is a big challenge for me, even though I think that human beings have been around for slightly longer than a young earth creationist would. I still find it difficult to understand how... If you watch Andrew Marr's History of the World, I don't know if any of you watched that, but it was a great illustration of how things have changed since I was in my 20s. So the very first shot at the start of Andrew Marr's History of the World was of this African woman, and you're zoning on this one woman, even though there's quite a lot of people, there's one woman, because she's Mitochondrial-Eve. She's the game changer. She's the mother of all currently living people. And that they're focusing on her. But even if she lived... Now, Andrew Marr, I can't remember what he says, but he probably says she lived around 150,000 years ago. He might have said she lived around 100,000 years ago. And I think those dates could be about right, or it might be that she was around 50,000 years ago. I don't know. But even then, it seems to me that isn't much time to account for the racial differences that we have today. Now... Forgive me if this slightly freaks some people out. Some people have said that if there was interbreeding with Neanderthals, that could account for some of the racial differences. Now, I'm not sure that I want to go into that speculation, but I think it illustrates the problem. I would say that it's difficult to understand how these changes have happened so fast, given the age of modern humans. But remember... This is not a challenge that's unique to the Christian viewpoint. This is just as much a challenge for... Let's imagine you had an atheist talking about human origins. They would have exactly the same problem. Because they've got anatomically modern humans emerging recently in East Africa. Well, that's the same as the old Earth creationist view. So for both of us, this is a problem. What we do know is that human beings colonized the Earth very quickly that there was a big bang, if you like, of human colonization of the earth, that by about 30,000 years BC, human beings had got onto all of the continents apart from North America. 
it's thought that between 10 and 14,000 years BC, humans got across the Bering uh, land bridge. They went all the way down the west coast of North America, and then very quickly down the west coast of South America. They must have got in boats to colonize Australia. There were no hominids in Australia, as far as we know, before anatomically modern humans. But this happens very quickly. So suddenly we've got music, we've got art, we've got religious expression, we've got paintings, we've got... When humans arrive on the scene, everything changes. They're super predators. They're not like uh, the hominids that preceded them. They're very, very, very different. How do they look so different? I'm not sure. But once again, in this book, uh, Who Was Adam? by Fazrana, there is a chapter on that with various ideas that you may or may not find persuasive. I mean, I, I, that's the question I'm really interested in. Great question. Okay. I think we're probably going to draw to a close at this point. Yes, we need to finish because uh, Lou and the band are going to come and rehearse. Unless, of course, Lou would like to come up and, and give some answers yes. to these questions up here. I'm not She's quite the best sure. person to answer uh, that. I think that's a no. <laughs> um, so uh, we need to move on. But just to remind you, Adrian's going to go hot foot now into the bookshop in the hub. He's doing a book signing session there. And there will be opportunity there for him to chat about anything in the book. So anything you've heard this afternoon in a more informal setting, so please toddle along there. Just to remind you, same time tomorrow, uh, Adrian is going to be doing a, si- a seminar on... Uh, the Bible. The, it's the you, Bible. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Bible, with a question mark on the end. Don't forget that. Uh, so that'll be excellent. And also then on Sunday, did Jesus really rise from the dead? So, I mean, that was fantastic this afternoon, although I must admit, even my brain is a little bit scrambled, whatever. But tomorrow, uh, it's the Bible and then the resurrection. So I want to encourage you to come back, but also think about other people from your churches who are here with us this weekend who would really benefit uh, from that. So that's tomorrow afternoon and Sunday afternoon, same time, same place. Let's just give Adrian another big thank you. Thank Thank you, Adrian.